Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka. Welcome to episode 96 of ADHD for Smartass Women, brought to you by Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, the six-step system that shows you how to fall in love with your ADHD brain. If you'd like more information, join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. So in this episode, I am going to introduce you to the amazing Julianne Decker. Julianne earned her bachelor's degree in marketing from the University of Massachusetts and her master's degree in training and development from Leslie University in Cambridge. She is a coach and an expert in leadership program design and delivery with broad work experience in industries such as technology, banking, consumer goods, retail, and finance. Julianne designed, delivered, and launched Monster.com's first global management development program for high potential leaders and trained and coached participants in their newly created MBA executive program. She has also developed global leadership programs at Aspen Technology and founded her own leadership and coaching company. So Julianne, welcome. And did I get all that right? That was a mouthful. You, wow, Tracy, that I, I'm impressed with myself just because of how you said it. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I really. recognize myself. <laughs> and that's such an ADHD thing. Like everybody else looks at, you know, what we've accomplished and they're like, oh my gosh. And we're, we're just kind of like next, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't wait to meet this Julianne that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So when were you diagnosed? Well, officially I was diagnosed for my 55th birthday gift to myself. I had known probably the majority of my life that something was different. I knew that I had struggles um, and I just sort of went with it because I didn't know any different. My parents didn't know any different. It was a generation that didn't really dig too deep to understand that type of thing. So I just went with it, but I struggled through high school. I struggled through college, um, but I was determined to make something of myself despite it. 
So, Julianne, around when do you remember first feeling like, ah, there's something not quite right here and I'm struggling? (laughs) If I was absolutely honest with you, I'd probably think kindergarten, believe it or not. I remember my mother dropping me off. I was one of four kids. I was the youngest. So she was probably so excited to finally get the last one off. And she dropped me off. I was the first one there. Our family is known for punctuality. And the teacher wanted to speak to my mother. So she said, why don't you just go make yourself busy and do a puzzle over there? And I went over and I loved the colors and the designs of the puzzles. So I started to do one. And before you knew it, I mean, I couldn't have been five minutes into it. I was feeling incredibly angst, incredibly frustrated and started to cry. So what had been a good experience, I was all excited to be there and meet new friends and do this. Suddenly a puzzle was melting me like there was no tomorrow. And I just remember in that moment feeling, even though I was young, being like, God, this seems like a very emotional moment. It's just a puzzle. So Julianne, it wasn't that you were, well, that you know of, it wasn't that you were upset about the fact that your mom was leaving and you were starting school. It was this puzzle that caused this meltdown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because the trip up, it was a great conversation with my mother. The teacher couldn't have been nicer. I knew some of the kids that were going to be in my class. It was a local, you know, um, community school. And I I was thrilled. I felt so independent. I finally was going to do what my brothers and sisters were doing. I was going to school. The shift happened the minute I felt like I had to do something that was expected of me. And I felt like I couldn't do it. I get this. I had this unbelievable emotional meltdown. I don't even know if my mother would remember that. Yeah, really. So what happened after that, as far as what was the next thing that you remember? I remember, you know, going through school and struggling probably fourth or fifth grade where you would read, you would have to do reading comprehensions and you would be in levels of reading. And that I always knew I was in one of the lower, slower levels, if you would. And we would have to read. And then the comprehension is we'd have to take a test that would obviously talk about what was in the reading. And I remember the anxiety. I remember sweating. I remember turning the page, even though I knew that wasn't right. You weren't supposed to read and then turn the page back to get the answer. But I I would sometimes try to because I did not want to appear as though I didn't remember what I had just read. And I remember always wanting to read and intellectually liking the idea of reading, but it was really a challenge. How were your grades? I would say I was probably a C student, B's and C's, the occasional A if it was something I was incredibly interested in. And did that confuse you, the fact that there were some subjects that you could do really well in and other subjects that you just were terrible? Yeah. Well, C's aren't terrible, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, maths and sciences were tough. So, I mean, the story I told myself is that the light, fluffier classes were the ones that I could handle. So, I did like to read. I did like spelling, believe it or not, even though I was not a great speller. Um, I loved anything that had to do with writing. So, that was always a treat for me. So, I just chalked it up to the, the, the heavy lifting subjects were difficult for me. How about socially? Socially, I was very connected to people, had a lot of friends, was the class clown, mm. um, was known for getting, you know, 
decent grades, if I got a B or a C or even an A, it would always usually say something about my behavior after those grades were not. I knew if my parents were coming home from a bad report card, it wasn't just the letter grade that I got. It was definitely the disruptive in class, likes to talk a lot, is silly. Those were the things that would probably get me in the most trouble. Did you know that you were smart? I didn't. I, I didn't. I I really thought I was not because part of my silliness was it covered up for my forgetfulness. I was an incredible child that would forget everything. I would go down to play at the neighbor's house and their mother at the end of the week would call and say, we have a box of belongings for Julian. And it ended up being kind of comedy and fodder for the family. We would talk about Julianne's stories. I'd lock the keys in the car while the car was running. I'd forget things at school. And my father's saying would be, you know, Julian, if your head wasn't attached, you'd lose that too. And so through that, I kind of got the message that these were funny stories and they were silly, but they also equated to me not being smart. Got it. And were your siblings, did they find school easy or did they struggle as well? I didn't notice if they struggled or not. I guess my oldest sister was incredibly smart. So as the leader of our family, she was very, very smart. And she uh, really benchmarked for all of us that education was important. Reading was incredibly important. I remember um, she would make me read with her. And if I wanted to stop, she would tease me and, and have a little spray bottle of water. And she'd say, come on, keep going. And to that, even though that seemed cruel, she was doing it to be silly. That is what motivated me to continue reading and my love of reading today, even though it was difficult. She pushed me to read. So I didn't notice if they were smart or not, because I think I was so inner focused on myself. Yeah. And I guess my, my question should have been, did they do well in school? Right? Because we know that what measures maybe two or three types of intelligence as far as school. And so I think a lot of us who don't do well in schools do think, ah, it must be because I'm not very smart rather than it must be because the system doesn't teach to the way my brain needs to learn. Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion, they, they were smart. I don't think they were off the charts smart, but they seemed to do okay. My brother um, was two years ahead of me and I definitely saw where he struggled a little bit, but you know, my my mother had two brothers that were developmentally challenged in ways that we didn't know that was not spoken about. Uh, but I know it was a source of shame for my mother. Mm. And so I know that there wasn't really a lot of talk about disabilities or not being able to develop in certain ways. So I think we just learned to do the best we could and just keep moving. So now that you know that it's ADHD, when you look at your parents, and we know that ADHD is just about as heritable as height, can you see any ADHD symptoms in either one of them? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, 100%. You know, sometimes we would even joke about it. He was a passionate, um, hardworking, gregacious man, but, you know, same, some of the same qualities I had could be forgetful, would go from one thing to the next. You, we would have to jump tracks all the time. He couldn't sit still. He would move, he would shake, he would, he would get stuff done. He was not one to sit. So that's how his ADHD came out. And what kind of work did he end up doing? He was a fireman and 
perfect ADHD profession. <laughs> oh, for sure. You know, two days on, days off, two days on. He always worked second and third jobs, couldn't sit still. Yeah, good under pressure. Oh, absolutely. No fear. No fear. It just, and he loved his job. That I mean, I have to give him credit. He was one of those men that walked out every day to go to work and would say, you know what? They need me. Got to go. Happy, whistling, skipping. Enjoyed it all. Never had a day of where he came home where I saw him impacted by it at all. Yeah. Always happy. Because he was in the right profession. Correct. So what happened then in high school? How did you do there? High school was okay. Um, I would say more of the same. It was difficult in the sense of uh, I really had to apply myself, I guess is the best way I could put it. In order for me to study and get decent grades, I had to really be find a quiet room, no distraction, and really work hard. I would have to also call on people because only certain people could help me with my homework. Sometimes I'd go to teachers and they just would explain it the same way. And I would end up not only frustrating myself, but I am most certain frustrating them in finding different adaptable ways to teach me math. And so I would have to rely on people that I trusted that I didn't feel would shame me or make fun of me or tease me. And they would help me with homework to the degree that they could. So you were basically there, you know, a teenager and Mm -hmm. trying to build workarounds for your brain so that you could learn this information. Absolutely. Did it work? You know, it did because, I mean, I kept going. I I mean, I guess that's probably one of my superpowers is perseverance is I felt like, you know, school was important to my older sister and she led the charge on that. So I felt like it was expected that I would go to college. So even though there were times in high school, I thought, oh my God, do I really have to do four more years of this? And are there any really good two-year schools around that I could go to? that I could check off the box. And, you know, in the end, I ended up going and doing four years just was, was challenging. It wasn't easy. So what happened your first year of college? I mean, it's pretty common that Mm -hmm. many of us with ADHD, uh, we, you know, even though we get through high school really well, I mean, college, I mean, you've got to do your own wash, you've got to get yourself fed, you've got to plan your own schedule, you know, there's a lot thrown on our plate. So, Many of us struggle with that first year. How did you do? Yeah, I struggled. Well, I adapted pretty well to the social aspect. So met a lot of friends, learned how what was going on on campus. Uh, but the studying was hard. There were a lot more noises. There were a lot more people in a smaller amount of space. I couldn't find those little uh, nuggets of room to be able to do the studying and would get distracted by stuff that was funner than my studying. So Quite honestly, I was happy to relinquish the study and to be able to be a part of a pod of women that were chatting down the hall and um, participating in any events that were happening on campus. So it became much more difficult for me to focus and my attention was drawn to other things that were of more interest to me. But you managed to get through. I did. Yeah, I had um, a couple of good counselors and, uh, you know, I took a class that was all about basically where are you going in life? And there was a woman there that just was such a compassionate listener, just understood the struggles that we were having as freshmen and just really encouraged us in a way I hadn't had encouragement 
to keep going and to find workarounds. And I remember her, couldn't even remember her name, but I'll never forget what she looks like. And I'll never forget the impact of her encouragement and her generosity of spirit, where she was really compassionate to what we were going through and the difficulties of learning in this new environment. You know, that's all it takes, right? One person who takes an interest and just even the name of that program that you took sounds incredible. Yeah. It was such a great um, highlight. And I, you know, just by coincidence, Landon and a couple of friends told me about it. And I thought, well, that sounds easy enough. Let me try that. Maybe that's a class I can pass. And in the end, it gave me one of the biggest gifts, which was this empowerment of being able to keep moving and compassion for myself. Yeah. So did you end up getting your master's right after your bachelor's or did some time pass? Did you go to work first? Yeah, Time passed. I, I was done with school. I was happy that I finished. I thought, wow, that's it for me. As <laughs> far as school goes, I, I have, I've done all that I can do and I've survived it. And now I'm going to go out into the world and, you know, learn a trade and do something that I'm passionate about and earn some money. And so I did that for a long time. And I fell in love by watching other people deliver leadership workshops and sales training workshops. And I loved it so much because the ones that I felt were really good at this craft of teaching, if you will, were the ones that brought it down to layman's terms, even the most complicated concepts down to layman's terms. And I had such an appreciation for people that could teach that way that I started to get intrigued with learning and development, training and development. And that's what led me on the path. I had always said if, and it was a big if, I went back to grad school, it would have to be around something that I really loved and I felt passionate about. So it took me 10 years to find that. And that's what brought me to grad school. So you went back in your like early 30s? Yes. And was that a different experience than college and high school and grade school? You know, it, it was a different experience. I felt like I had some wisdom under my belts. I felt like I had experienced the world a little bit and I felt ready. It wasn't just something I was doing to check a box. It felt like something I wanted to explore and find out how to get better at because I had a benchmark. I saw some people that did this work well and I wanted to be one of them. So I think that passion and desire drove me. And when I got into grad school, it was a small pot of people where we traveled two years consecutively together. So it was the same group of people. Coincidentally, I'd say 20 out of the 21 of us were women. And so it felt like a very safe and comfortable environment. I had a pot of women. There were five of us that worked together on most of our projects and they were so supportive. And I was able to open up to them about some of my struggles with learning and with processing information. And they couldn't have been kinder or more compassionate. They still loved my silly spirits and allowed me to be me, but saw where I struggled and found and helped me with workarounds so that I was a contributing member of the team. You built a community, basically. I did. So Juliana, at any point during this time when you were struggling, did you ever consider ADHD? Did you even know what ADHD was? 
I would say it, believe it or not, I always feel like I'm a late bloomer, but it wasn't until I was older and in the workforce that it really started to click for me. And I'm like, oh, I keep hearing about this ADHD, but I think it's for young kids. And, you know, maybe I had it when I was younger, but I've certainly probably outgrown it. Or maybe I've just found some great workarounds, but I'm not certain if it's for me. So I did do some counseling at one point. How old would you have been? I probably was in my, I'm going to guess 30s. Okay. After after your master's? Yeah, after my master's. Okay. And I started inquiring about it and talking to a counselor about it. And she was like, well, if you're intrigued, I have somebody that you could talk to and you know they can assess you and find out if it's right for you. And so I agreed and I went and it was a questionnaire that this uh, doctor asked me to fill out. So I brought it to my mother. So it was the first time, interestingly enough, I had a conversation with my mother. She seemed a smidge apprehensive just in the, you know, what's this all about? And and are you sure you have something? I think you're fine. And all right, just to humor you, I I will do this. But it it definitely took some nudging on my part to get her to do it. And as she was going through the questions about how I show up in the world, I think there were some light bulbs that went on for her because she thought, well, that's interesting. That's interesting because she didn't know a lot about it. So it was really educating her in some ways. So she completed the questionnaire and then I did a self questionnaire and I brought it back to the doctor's office. And when I got there, it was this gentleman and he looked through the documentations. Now, again, this is really my second visit with him, expecting some type of diagnosis or understanding of where my brain is at. Mm-hmm. And he takes the paperwork that's probably three to five pages long. And he just looks at it. There's no introductions. There's no niceties to me. There's no explanation of how he's going to work. He just keeps going, mm, interesting. Mm-hmm, mm, mm. And I am there for probably 15 to 20 minutes. And I even interjected a couple of times to get him to talk to me. And he said, nope, just give me a minute. And so about 20 minutes later, he looked at me and he said, yep, classic signs. You know, you have the big three, you have anxiety, you have depression, and you have ADHD. So by the end of this, you're going to be like most of my clients. I'm probably going to be your best friend. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you all of these medications and they're going to help you. And I walked out feeling like I got slapped upside the head. It wasn't just the diagnosis. I just felt like, you know, it was this dog and pony show. Like, what was that that just happened? It didn't. I felt like just from the sheet of paper, I feel like I needed something more scientific. Just the way that he treated it, it felt like I was just like one more in the the wheel. And he didn't explain at all what ADHD looks like, the symptom, nothing. No. Very, Very brief, very succinct, as though this was just one more person that he was seeing throughout the day and diagnosing and coming to him. Did you feel like the anxiety and the depression were legitimate for you? I didn't see that because I saw myself as a happy-go-lucky person. But that's not to say that I couldn't see episodes of either anxiety or depression, but certainly not as an overall diagnosis. And why had you decided to go pursue this in the first place? What had been going on for you? I'll be honest, I think a lot of it was curiosity 
number one, because I felt like I always felt like there was something different about me. So one was the curiosity aspect. The second was I really felt like I wasn't smart. So in some of these counseling sessions, that would come up repeatedly. So self-esteem, having lots of success in my career. I mean, I'd gotten my master's degree and I had, you know, a straight A average. I traveled the world delivering, designing and delivering leadership programs. So I was independent traveling to places like Russia and China and various global locations. And I was able to do that without even thinking about it. But yet there was this piece that gnawed on me about being smart. And so I was trying to make that bridge, that connection between am I smart? Am I not smart? And if I'm not smart, why am I not smart? smart, And what is it that's kind of clogging my brain to make it not access things the way that other people can access things? That is so interesting. So you could see that other people would look at your life and say, she's had all these successes, but you still questioned whether or not you were smart and how that could be that you'd have all those successes. Or maybe you didn't even, did you see them as successes? Could you see that? I could, but in the moment. So I would see it and then it would be checked off and then I'd be like, all right, what's my next endeavor? Because that's not enough. That, you know, that just was a fluke. That was luck. That yeah. was a moment in time. So for, for graduate school, I would say, well, you know, I did do really good work, but a lot of the work was group activities and I was with some pretty smart people. So, you know, thank God they carried me, which was, if you asked any of them, they would not say that. They would not agree with that, that I was a significant part to that. But that's what my brain would allow me to believe. So what happened after you got that diagnosis in your mid-30s? Did you do anything with it? You know, I was so dismayed by the way that it was handled that it really was a turnoff for me. Did you not trust it? I didn't trust it. I didn't trust the doctor more than not trusting the diagnoses. I think I always trusted the diagnoses, and I think I always knew that that was the case. I didn't trust him. Mm-hmm. specifically. So I just said, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. What difference is it going to make? Just keep going. And so I just kept going. And so what was the turning point? Almost, yeah, 20 years later. And this just happened, right? It when did. When were you? It happened. You were diagnosed how long ago? How many months ago? Uh, one year ago. One year ago. In January. Yes. Okay. So... so- Go on. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I think one of the pivotal moments for me is I had an opportunity to do work with a company that is a boutique company in Boston, well-respected, a group of very smart, very pristine people that work for this organization. And a friend of mine worked there and suggested that I come over and do some freelance. Everything we did was freelance work for them. And so I said, Okay. So she set me up with the interview with the owner and it went well because I ended up getting asked to join the firm. Yeah. I didn't think the interview necessarily went well. So already I was like, well, you know, I only got in because of this woman who was really brilliant and really smart and a good dear friend of mine. She got me in. So 
I'll do the best I can and do the work here. And the people there couldn't have been nicer or more gifted in the work that they did. But I always felt like I was behind the eight ball. And so I would go on these incredible client visits. I would work with these people. I would learn a lot from them. But the anxiety started to ratchet up where I'd start to say, oh, I am an imposter. They are going to see me. These big clients are going to see me. My peers are going to see me. And I would always ask for feedback when we were done and I would get really good client reviews and my heart couldn't trust it. And I just felt like I was always trying to measure up to these people that I saw on these pedestals that were incredibly brilliant. And so I worked on a project once where my colleague, who was incredibly brilliant, was asked to do the work. She couldn't. So she asked if I wanted to take it on and I took it on and I did it. And I did a really good job with a very limited time and limited access to resources. And I did this great training program, but it didn't feel like it was my best. And I felt like I kept using other people as my benchmark to measure how good I was. And in doing that, I felt like I wasn't being my authentic self. And so when I showed up for some of these workshops, I wasn't me. And when I had glimpses of moments during the workshops where I was me is where I got my best responses from people. People identified with me. People laughed with me. People understood the struggles. People understood the content that I was delivering because I was being real. Mm. And so I started to see that there was some real distortion in my thinking and that it was paralyzing me from the work that I was doing. And if I was going to have any impact on this world, which was really the only thing that I wanted to do was live a full and authentic life and make a difference. I felt like I had to get myself in check. That I had to start figuring out where did these messages come from? What does smart look like? What makes somebody smart? What are my superpowers that I have? And what is smart? And are there many ways to be smart other than just intellectually smart? And so through that, through almost, you know, crippling anxiety around my career, which was the one thing I could always hang my hat on, I always had a solid career where I felt like, you know, I was given back. I felt like, oh, well, if I lose this, I'm going to lose everything. And I think that's what finally made me think, you need to get to the bottom of this. Enough time has passed. Time is passing you by. If you really want to live authentically, live to your full potential, you know, appreciate authenticity and beauty and connection and making a difference, then you have to start peeling back and getting to the bottom of it. So Julianne, do you, Did you find that your symptoms were getting worse as you approached midlife? Was there any difference there? I think I can't say that my symptoms were getting worse. The anxiety around the symptoms that I already had were getting worse. I don't know if that makes sense. 
Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. I think I was thinking that my differences were much bigger than they were. It just what felt you, like what I... What do you mean your differences? What do, what so do you mean your differences? My differences, I felt like if I was in a group setting in somebody gave a perspective, sometimes it would take me a couple of minutes to hear the input of what they said before I spoke. So I was a little bit slower on the uptake. So if we were in a dialogue with a group, sometimes it would take me a minute because multiple people were speaking with different perspectives. And then they would ask my perspective. And I was still back at person number two or three trying to comprehend what they were saying. Mm. So it's almost like I had some auditory input deficit. And so sometimes in my work, I felt like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not as quick as I used to be. And it's taken me a little longer to process this and to be quick on my feet and to be good at what I do. Got it. Okay. So you went back and got diagnosed. I did. And tell me about your second experience. How did that work out? So I decided that I want to do something that to me felt more authentic and felt more scientific. So I went to a very reputable hospital in the Boston area. We're known for our hospitals here. And I went to Brigham and Women's and they have a neurology center where they will test you. So I got approval from my primary care doctor to do that. And they brought me in for a three-hour test. And it was so intriguing and grueling all at the same time. Just the fact that I had to sit still for three hours to do multiple tasks was, was just interesting with no response. You know, obviously they're not giving you any indication if you did well or not do well. So it was driving me crazy during the whole testing process. I wanted to know like, did I pass? Am I okay? Am I not? And I had to just keep going through each of the different tasks that they were looking at. And I remember at the very last task, it was this part with a computer where you're looking at a blank screen and they said to you, you know, you're going to be about 13 minutes. You can't get up. You can't take a break. So you need to now which put me into a state of anxiety. And then I sat in front of the computer and, you know, these letters come at you and you have to, when it's certain letters hit the keyboard and then other letters, you don't hit the keyboard. So it was this impulse reflex piece for attention and for focus and for concentration and for impulse. And I remember getting out of there at the end of all of those three hours and that being the last task and just saying like, oh my God, I am thoroughly exhausted. I don't know what's going on in my head, but that was a lot. And so about a week later, they brought me in and gave me the results and went through each various piece of the results to show me my diagnosis. And I asked the woman who was a neurologist, I said, you know, you've seen a lot of people, you have a lot of wisdom, you've been here for a long time on a scale of one to 10, where do you think that I fit in for folks that you've seen? So 10 being off the charts with ADHD and one being a mild case of ADHD. And she said, well, you're definitely probably a solid seven or eight. And I remember being blown away by that. I was like, well, I thought I had it, but I really kind of thought maybe I was on the lower scale. So it put some things into perspective for me, you know, where I was struggling and what were some key issues for me. And even in the diagnosis, I was struggling And I spoke up to talk about one of my struggles. And she said, what a great workaround you just showed me. You spoke up for yourself. And that is something that you are going to have to do more and more and more. Because not everybody knows your brain, Julianne. 
So you have to tell people what your brain needs so you can give it what it needs to be successful. So congratulations on your first step. And I was like, <laughs> wow, look at me. So how did you feel when you walked away the second time? I definitely felt like I was home. I know that seems like something weird to say. I felt like. Uh, so you trusted it. I did trust it. I did trust it. I trust. I, I knew it. I knew instinctually that I had it. I've known for a long time. Really, no questions asked. I knew I had it. I think there was a sense of relief, you know, like a documentation. Someone, someone in authority told me that I have this. Um, even when we walked through it, it made sense. It, you know, it was also clear there were some areas that I did well. You know, and there are other areas where I struggle. So it felt, it felt right. What has changed since you were diagnosed a year ago? I'm more willing to talk about it with less shame. I can't say that there aren't some moments where I feel like that. By talking about it more with colleagues, I've learned more. And I don't even mean colleagues in a work sense. I just mean a community of people. I have tried to take greater risks and not be so judgmental of myself. I've got back that love of learning. Like I want to learn and it's okay to learn on my terms. And so I've started to read books about ADHD, which led me to your podcast, which has been a godsend. I, I walk every day and I listen to one of your podcasts and it is not only uplifting just to hear your voice that's just so supportive and confident, but it's always with interesting guest speakers or interesting data that I'm guaranteed to get at least one, two or three nuggets of things that I can try differently in my life. So it's, it's opened me up to a new way of being and learning and growing and developing. That sounds wonderful. So what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? I think humor. I always wanted to kind of stuff that down in my later years because I didn't think I looked professional. And I'm finding more and more if I keep that gift, that that is important. I think intuition. I've always had strong intuition and now I don't second guess that. So I think intuition and having that. And I think that I am able to connect with all different people. Mm. Like I can walk into a room and make fe people feel very at ease and comfortable immediately. And to me, that's important because I think that's how you start to make a difference is people want to be seen. People want to be heard where they're at. And I think if we start there, then that is a great way to open up relationships and to get people to be open to moving in a different direction that serves them better. And if I can have any part in doing that for folks, then I'd be a happy woman. That's lovely. And then kind of an offshoot of that question, what do you think the key is to living successfully with ADHD? 
for you? For me, it was acknowledging it for sure. I think it was understanding that I'm not defective, that I am a whole human being that just works differently, and that's okay. But the onus is on me to figure out how do I work differently, what will work and what won't, and do that in a kind and compassionate way and never give up on learning how to keep doing that. That's brilliant. Julianne, what is your number one ADHD workaround? For me, it has been using the focus mate, believe it or not. <laughs> I love to hear that. Yeah. I didn't know about focus mate until I listened to your podcast. I heard about it. And as a coach myself, I thought, well, maybe I better explore this for some of my coaching clients because I didn't want to think that perhaps I would need it. And I have to be honest, I really kind of went into it like that. Why don't you explain for those who don't know what Focusmate is, kind of what it is? It is an opportunity to work with somebody. So it's based off doing a body double mirroring, if you will, where you work with somebody to get your work done. Now, that person that you meet with, you go online and you schedule a date and a time so that you can meet with this person. In the effort of both of you being productive and getting things done, the premise being that when you are together and accountable with another person that you can see, because you do meet where you can visibly see each other via camera on your phones remotely, and you talk to your partner and you tell them what your goal is, it is 50 minutes long, so not quite an hour, which was appealing to me, and you just each introduce yourself very briefly, tell what your goals are for that 50-minute session. It can be anything from organizing your house, cooking, writing a paper, to drafting a course. And so when the time is up, you check back in and see how you did, and then you walk away. And those dopamine hits that we talk about came through fast and furious for me when I did it. The first one that I did, I thought, well, again, I'm just doing this to check it out to see if it's any good for my clients. And I got on and that 50 minutes of just having someone there, we didn't talk. Obviously, that's not part of the platform. We muted our phones. We had agreed to that and we did our work. And when I looked up, the time had passed and I had gotten not only what I had expected to do, but an additional item done on my to-do list. And I was thrilled. So we did a little celebration on the phone. And, uh, you know, I went on my way and then I couldn't stop talking about it to everybody else. Then I felt like everybody else needed to know it. So I have friends now that are addicted to it. So I feel like not only was it the gift that came to me, but it is the gift that I'm passing on to others. That's awesome. And just so our listeners know, we do have our own group on Focusmate. It's called, of course, ADHD for Smartass Women. And I will post the link. You have to join our group. And then if you go into, oh gosh, what do they call it? Up at the very top, we pin our announcements. There's an announcement up there at the top where you can join our group on Focusmate. So, hey, thanks for that plug, Julianne. (laughs) Very welcome. My pleasure. So, Julianne, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Before you go, is there anything that you're working on that you want to share with us? Well, one of the decisions that I made when I went through the AOK program is that I wanted to try something new with my skill 
as it related to my career. So one of my passions has always been organizing. I did not start off being organized as a kid, as perhaps my parents would actually laugh to know that this is something that I'm passionate about. But I did find that is also one of my number one hacks is being organized has helped me tremendously keep on track of my work. And so I've decided that I am no longer going to look at my company that I had started, The Unobstructed View, as a side project. I'm going to look at launching that into potentially a full-scale business. It sounds so scary saying it, but it's also very exciting. <laughs> it it sounds like even though, well, when you just blurted out, it sounds so scary. It also sounded really exciting the way you blurted it out. <laughs> it is. It is. It's one of those things that when I go to a client, again, because I've just been doing this as a side business, when I go to a client, I, I'm that morning I wake up, I'm excited. I can't wait to meet them. I love the feeling of helping them through it in conversations and dialogues because I get to know them better and I get to understand where their struggles are, where their apprehension is as it relates to getting organized, but also staying organized. What kind of systems do they need that'll work for them? Not just what I think is best, but what's going to work for them. And then to see that light at the end, that sense of peace, that sense of satisfaction that they might just be able to work in a different way because their space is organized makes me feel so good on their behalf. Positive emotion. You got it. <laughs> you're not only feeling it, right? You're also giving it. Yes. Well, I'm going to keep you to that because we need to have someone here on the podcast talking about organization. So the minute you are ready, you need to contact me and we're going to have you here talking about it. We'll make that happen, Tracy. Sounds great. So if people want to find you, if they want to know more about you, if they perhaps want to ask you a question, is there someplace that they can do that? So I would have them reach out to me at julianne at theunobstructedview.com. I'm going to go right after this podcast, make sure that that link is up and running and connected. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm already hustling. I'm already hustling. But I want to make sure, see, this will make me accountable. So Julianne, J-U-L-I-A-N-N, at theunobstructedview.com. Perfect. Okay. And I'm going to have that in the show notes as well, which you can find at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash podcast. So Julianne, thank you again. And that is what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Julie Ann, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn just how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really do help in that regard. If you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message, or you can reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. 
We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.